Good morning. Please stand and um, so we can honor the reading of God's word. This morning's scripture comes from John 6, 33 through 35. If you want to turn to it in your Bibles or pull it up on your Bible app. It says, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Alyssa. Great job. Uh, we are, uh, if you're uh, joining us this Sunday, we're starting off a new tradition where we uh, invite a member of our church to read the scripture because it's a, just such a powerful thing to do to, to be able to hold the word of God that has stood the test of time and declare it over uh, one another. And so I'm really, really excited about that because it's great to hear uh, different voices hold the word and, and read it. Uh, I am really excited to continue our series called Abide, where we've been examining the power and beauty of God's word. And uh, I I say this every Sunday, but I love, love, love being here with you all, worshiping God together. In fact, on Thursday, I was having lunch with a a pastor friend, and we were talking about, you know, our views of the Sunday morning. And he shared with me, here's how I think about the Sunday morning. And and he's like, I just, it's like a big party, and we're just like practicing for heaven. And I'm like, yeah, that's, that's really cool. But the way I think about the Sunday morning and the way I see the scriptures talk about the Sunday morning and and even church history is that this gathering is actually really powerful. Uh, That when God's people come and they gather to worship the living God, God says that he meets us when we praise him and when we gather as the great assembly of the saints. And then, and then there's this element where we open up the word of God and we look at the word of God and then we respond to it with our lives and with our mind. And the word says that when we look at the word, the person of the word meets us and encounters us. And then we purposefully take communion every single Sunday because he says when we celebrate and remember him, he is there with us. And so every single movement of this gathering is, is focused around specific points and promises where God says he will meet us and he will be with us in those places. And I said, man, I think the, the gathering of the saints is so powerful because when we gather, listen, God will transform you. God will change you. And, and what's so amazing about this is that you're sitting here in this moment and you're like, Really? Because uh, I've been coming to this thing for a year or two or three. Do you see who I'm sitting next to? Uh, there's no transformation there, friend. Uh, and it's like, is this really happening? Uh, but I, this is the way that I like to think about it. When you think about a, a boat, or maybe you've been on a, a cruise ship, when that ship or that boat drops anchor, that thing is not going anywhere. And what's so amazing about this experience, if you've ever been on a boat and you drop the anchor or you've been on a cruise ship and it kind of just drops the anchor and you're sitting out there in the middle of the ocean, is that you don't feel the anchor. You don't even know it's there. But the moment that thing gets lifted up, the whole boat begins to drift and it begins to move. And what I believe about this gathering and even our discipleship to Jesus and even this idea of abiding with him is that it's this powerful idea that anchors us. That when you're doing it, it kind of feel like nothing is changing. But you notice that when you miss that rhythm or, or you stop participating or obeying God, you, you feel like you begin to drift. 
And I believe that that's the call that Jesus is calling us to. It's to be so anchored in him that life just feels really normal. And that the moment that we're not, we begin to feel that drift because we're not anchored in the person, the source of life who is grounding us and keeping us stable. And so with this idea of being anchored in the Lord and abiding in him, one of the ways that we practice abiding and, and participating and participate communing with God is by uh, dwelling and looking upon his word and allowing his word to feed our spirit. And so Alyssa did a great job reading uh, a portion of John chapter six. And what we're gonna do today is spend actually a lot of time in John chapter six. So if you have a Bible or your Bible app, I encourage you to just open it up because we're really gonna go from the beginning to the end and we're gonna cover a lot of scripture, but this is a great story because it's going to all come together with this idea that the word feeds our spirit. Now, I'll open up with this. I, uh, my father is a, is a fourth generation baker. Uh, the man is, is an expert at baking bread. You name it, he can do it. Uh, in fact, both my parents are really skilled bakers and they do all the cake stuff. And uh, that makes me a fifth generation baker. All right, so uh, I'm qualified to speak on this text because it's about bread, okay? Uh, And so that's my opening. I got you in. Let's look at it together. We're going to start at the beginning of chapter 6, and we're going to go in some places verse by verse, and other places we're just going to kind of skim through them, and at the end we're going to all tie it together. So John chapter 6, verse 1, this is what it says. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat with his disciples. So some quick background. Jesus is a master teacher and his whole ministry really revolves around reversing the effects of sin and inaugurating this new kingdom, this new relationship, this new way uh, of living and abiding with God. And he begins to introduce himself in really specific ways. He, He begins to unfold his ministry by these really elaborate miracles and signs, so much so that uh, the news has gotten out about Jesus and people are curious about him and they're flocking all around to see who is this man. Uh, apparently in the town over, there's a man who can resurrect the dead. Let's go see for ourselves. We've heard of a man who can perform all all sorts of miracles, open blind eyes. Let's go see it for ourselves. And that's where we find ourselves. And there's a large crowd gathering because Jesus is gaining this rapid following. And so Jesus and his disciples are peopled out. They've been around people all day, every day. And so they get in a boat to cross the sea, to get some distance, hoping to rest and recharge. But there is a problem. Some people see the direction the boat went in and they headed over there by foot to see what Jesus was up to. Uh, In fact, this moment, this story in Jesus's life is actually recorded in all four gospels, uh, the the accounts of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And this is significant uh, because they all write a different perspective of how this moment went down. And here's what Mark says uh, when we get to this moment uh, in, in Mark chapter six, verse 34. When he went ashore, He saw a great crowd and had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. I'm going to read that one more time. When he went ashore and saw a great crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. Now, Mark highlights something about Jesus 
that John did not mention when he retells this story. And he says this, Jesus saw the people and he had compassion on them. Now, Kent Hughes, um, a scholar that I've been really gleaning from, he points out that the use of this word compassion is very, very special. And the reason why is because the word compassion tells us that Jesus felt the needs of each person in the crowd. That the God of the universe, when he saw the mass amount of people, he did not gather just this one broad idea like, oh man, I just have compassion on them because they have all these needs and they've traveled such a far way to come see me. No, he individually identified the need of every single person that was there and his heart was moved by affection and love for them. Now, let me put this into perspective because when we read this, it says 5,000 men. This does not include women and children. So some speculate that there could be anywhere from 10 to 15,000 people in this crowd, upwards to 20,000 individuals. And Jesus felt the individual needs of every single person. And you're asking yourself, how can Jesus do this? Because Jesus is God and he created every single one of those persons. And he knows intimately what they need. 5,000 men plus women and children, up to 20,000, depending on how literal the family stuck be fruitful and multiply. Lots of kids. Lots of kids. Some of you guys are, are, are on that track, and I praise you for it. Uh, full nurseries, in Jesus' name. Um, Jesus felt the needs of each person in that crowd. And there are two things that this passage says that we need. The first is a shepherd. And this is our spiritual need. Uh, The primary need that each person in that crowd needs met, us included, is that we need a shepherd. And what does this mean? We need direction. We need instruction. We need God to step into our lives and and, and lead us and tell us how we should live and, and give us purpose and direction. And it says that Jesus begins to minister to them and he begins to teach them wonderful things about the kingdom of God. Our primary need is that we need a shepherd. We need a Lord. And, and, and this one's an easy one to believe because when you examine your life, how great has your life been when you've led yourself? Uh, maybe you've had some really good moments. Maybe you, you, you've made some money and had some accomplishments and things have gone really well for you momentarily. But often the fruits of our lives when we try to lead ourselves is not that we create a better world. What we often see is that we create pain. We create hurt. Or we create dysfunction. And that is because the human was not designed to lead itself and to be autonomous. Rather, we were designed to be led and governed by someone bigger and greater than us. And that person is God. The second need is a physical need. And it's the most obvious one, it's food. 
This group of people came as far as 10 miles on foot to find Jesus, um, and, and their excitement is evident that, that this large crowd uh, made no plans for lodging or dinner. They were just so captivated by this man that they followed him and followed him and followed him, and when they looked up, they realized they were far from home, and they made no plans for lodging or dinner. And what's so incredible about the grace of God in this moment is that Jesus refuses to send them home hungry. Or he could have said, man, you, you really didn't plan well on this one. Like, uh, uh, you, you deserve to be without food and, and without shelter. Jesus refuses to send them home hungry. Why? Because one scholar says that the effect of Jesus' teaching would have been lost if this crowd was sent home in hunger. After spending a long day with Jesus, hearing about the kingdom of God, learning about the kingdom of God, being so excited about this person, if they were to go home hungry, you and I know they would have forgot everything because they're like, you and I, we get hung hangry. We're led by our belly and our emotions. Imagine how miserable the journey back home would be if you were hungry. You can experience really cool stuff See God do really amazing things, but if you're hungry, it doesn't even matter. It doesn't have the same power and effect. It's hard to focus. It changes the situation. No matter how cool Jesus teaches about spiritual things, the body still needs to be taken care of. Uh, last year, uh, my wife and I and my son, we went to the beach, the Gulf area, because she's from North Carolina, has never seen a Texas beach. And I said, wait till you see these Texas beaches. They're amazing. They're just great. I said, world class. They're amazing. So we get there, and she's like, are we there? That lake? No, ah, that's the Gulf. Uh, but it ended up being a really cool trip. Like it was a lot of fun, really restful, really refreshing. It just felt like such a good break from the p- pace of life. And, and we were in the car driving back and it was like really, really, really fun. And uh, we were both like shocked, like, because traveling with a little one, you just never know what's going to happen. Elias was awesome. The whole thing was amazing. And uh, on the way back, we we go that sort of like uh, Texas country town, small way, like from Rockport to that one town. And then you kind of drive to Seguin and then end up in San Marcos. Um, And I'd never driven that way. And so I I knew nothing about it. And so uh, we hit the first small town and Morgan's like, I'm hungry. And I was like, does anything look good? And she's like, no, none of this looks good. We can't eat any of this. And I was like, the next town. And then we get to the next town and there's absolutely nothing to eat in that town. I said, surely the next town will maybe have a Dairy Queen because that's a a small town staple. And there was absolutely nothing. And for an hour and a half, my wife and my son are grumbling in hunger and we finally make it to Seguin after being on the road that long and we finally get some food uh, in, in our system. And you would have thought if you examined our situation in that current moment, that it was the worst trip we'd ever taken. <laughs> uh, you, you would have thought that the, th- the whole thing was over. Uh, like, like we weren't together. Uh, this, this thing wasn't going to work out. Sorry, we clocked in. It, it's over. You would have thought that we had the most miserable experience because we were so hungry. And Jesus does not want this incredible, amazing spiritual moment to be overshadowed by their hunger. And so he cares about their spiritual health, and he also cares about their physical health. And if I could pause here to reveal something about our Lord and Savior and the God of the Bible, is that he really cares about your body. He created it. He cares about it. 
He wants to see it thrive and he cares about its well-being. And he wants to put substance in it that would make it uh, function at an optimal rate and place. And so there's not enough food to feed a minimum of 5,000 people, let alone 15,000. So what's the solution? Let's look at verse 9. There is a boy who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are they for so many, one says. And Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was so much grass in the place, so the men sat down about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. Verse 12, and when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments with the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. There's a problem. There's no food. Jesus' solution is let's take this small, insignificant thing like bread and fish. It's all we have, but it's all they need. And he offers it up to God, gives thanks, and somehow, by a miracle, they begin to distribute it so much so that everybody was, was satisfied. They had enjoyed a good meal. Jesus provided for this 10,000 plus people in a supernatural, miraculous way. And when the people see this, they see something. And we see a clue of that in verse 14. When they saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Who is the prophet, the long-awaited Messiah that they anxiously waited for, that they thought would come deliver them from their oppression, from their hopelessness, from their fear, from the enemy, Rome. And they thought to themselves, this is the guy. Surely he can raise up an army of thousands if he can multiply something so insignificant like fish and bread. And Jesus perceiving that they would take him by force to prop him up as king withdrew. Why? Because Jesus comes, and you know this, not as the king that they want, but the king that they need. And their immediate need says, no, we need somebody to rescue us from this bad quality of life that we're having. But Jesus knows that their deeper need is one, they need a savior who would rescue them from their sin. They need a Lord. They need a shepherd. They need this mechanism of sin removed from them that causes them to hunger and thirst for everything this world has to offer that isn't God. And what Jesus is showing us in this moment is that this feeding of the 5,000 is just an appetizer that would prepare the heart for something far greater. Let's make our way down to verse 26. Very next day, Jesus is having a conversation with some people who have found him after he retreated once again. And in verse 26, it says, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me. Not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. 
For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? We need a shepherd and we need our hunger to be satisfied. Our two primary needs that we see in the scripture. But the crowd is seeking something from Jesus, that which Jesus never claimed to be. The people want Jesus to meet all of their material needs. Uh, If you can give us bread out of nothing, maybe you can give us more stuff. Maybe you can give us a a, a better life. Maybe you can give us more money, a a nice house, a better job, an easier home life. And and the issue is that these physical desires are, are not wrong. Hear me. The issue is that we truly believe they can fix something. The issue is not that our our desire for a better home life or for a bigger home or for a better car or a better career or a relationship or a family. It's not that those things are wrong. It's that deep down inside, we truly believe they can fix something. That they can satisfy a longing that lives inside of us that only can be met by the living God. These physical desires reveal a deep spiritual reality. And that is the point that Jesus is trying to drive home. Let's look at verse 27 again. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you for on him, God, the father has set his seal. So what we see here is that there's two types of bread. Uh, The first bread sort of represents a, a material bread that perishes. Uh, it's sort of like the food or the substance that the world says that if if you eat this or if you consume this or if you do this, you'll come alive. Uh, It it could actually very well be food. Like if you, you you know, subscribe to this great cornucopia diet, all your your wellness will just be through the roof. Uh, It could be a a certain lifestyle that an influencer is saying, hey, this is is how I made my money and this is how where all the happiness comes from. Live like this, do this, and everything will be better. It could be wealth, pursuing more wealth and feasting on that, eating upon that, believing that money will come and make you come alive or having the right mindset. And, and 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 it tells us this lie that if you live this way or if you pursue these things, you'll never be hungry again. You'll never be hungry for significance. You just live this way or buy these clothes or talk like this or do these things. You'll never be hungry for worth. You'll never hunger again for peace. If you just take a little bit more of this and do a little bit more of that, you'll never hunger for love or approval. You'll never hunger again for respect. All of this can be yours if you just take a bite of this fruit. The reality is that Jesus calls that bread that perishes. That's that's moldy bread. It it gives the appearance that there's something there to eat. But when you open the bag, you see that it's spoiled, that it's stale, that it's useless, that it's no good. And the alternative is the bread that never goes stale. It is a bread that never spoils. Jesus says that there's actually a spiritual bread that lives eternally, that never spoils, that never goes stale. And that this food actually produces eternal life. Let's look at verse 33 as we continue our way through 
chapter 6. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is amazing. This is the thing that had me doing like three circles around here in the church, uh, old school Pentecostal running. Some of y'all know what that's about. I do that early mornings, okay? When none of you guys are here, so y'all don't look at me weird. We'll do it publicly soon. Who knows? Uh, this is amazing, okay? Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is eternal life. These scriptures are so incredible, and, and sometimes they, they, they lose their significance or their power because they were, they were not written in English. They were actually written in Greek, and a, a couple ideas get lost in translation. Uh, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, and then we examine that in the Greek, the, the word for I am is this, is this title, ego imi. Ego emi. And the reason why this is very, very significant is because when we read the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which is called the Septuagint, uh, and, and you make your way to Exodus chapter 3, there you will find Moses having a conversation with God and God commissioning Moses to go set his people free in Egypt. And Moses asked God one question. He says, when I arrive in Egypt, who should I say sent me on this mission? Because right now I'm talking to a burning bush, and this is kind of crazy. So, so who should I say sent me here? And this is what God tells them. He says, tell them I am has sent you. And when we read that, it says, ego Emmy has sent you. I am is one of the names that God used of himself. It means that God has existed before, that God has existed after, that God has always existed, that he is the eternal God, that there is no beginning and no end. He is. Now, every single Jewish boy, girl, man, and woman knew that I am ego Emmy was a title strictly reserved for God. And no one else could bear that name. So much so that any attempt to bear that name would mean that you would be killed for blasphemy because you were claiming to be God. And guess what? Seven different times in the book of John, Jesus says, I am. Ego in me. I'm the voice behind the burning bush. I was the one who provided the manna for your ancestors in the wilderness. I am the one true living God. And, and, and here's where this became a problem. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a discourse with the Jewish priest, and this is how he concludes the conversation. In John chapter 8, verse 58 through 59, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up the stones to throw at him, 
But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Do you see what's happening here? They picked up the stones to throw at him with the intent to kill him because he was claiming to be God. The God in the burning bush, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the in the beginning God created God. And the reason why this is significant when Jesus says, I am the bread of life is because the creator of life can fill hearts that have been emptied by sin with this presence that is satisfying food for our souls because he is God and he is the creator of life. And he can look at the empty heart that's been emptied by sin and disappointment and brokenness and fill it with his presence. The only bread, the only substance that can truly satisfy and give life. Now, what does this mean for us? What do we do with this? I believe this means three things for us, if you're taking notes. First one is, Jesus is to be received. Jesus is to be received. John 6, 27, do not work for bread that perishes. The bread of life does not come from working. It comes from Christ. Uh, John uh, says in, in, in 6.35, he said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes to me, or as the King James says, he that cometh, the person that comes, the person that places herself before Christ, uh, he will never turn away, and he will make available for them a, a bread, a substance, a life in him that completely satisfies and quenches all the desires that sin rises up in our hearts. And notice that there's no instruction. There's no prerequisite. It just says whoever comes. No preparation whatsoever. Think about how this is such a wonderful truth. Jesus is to be received, to be welcomed into your life. And you don't have to get your life straightened out or get your home nice and clean before you make room for him in your heart. No preparation needs to be made. Jesus is to be received. He is not earned. He is not wooed. He is not the God who makes us take our boat out to him. But what we see in scripture is that he comes to us and he'll walk on water if he has to. We all feel like we need to do something for Jesus. We all feel like we need to earn it or clean ourselves up or fix something because deep down inside, we recognize that something is broken. We recognize that there is a gap between us and a holy God. And hear me, church, this is what makes the gospel good news. This gap is not closed by your performance. It's bridged by a person who loves you. This gap is not closed by your performance. It is bridged by a person who has come to you because he loves you. Eternal life. Life with God is received. The victory you're hungry for, it is received. The peace you're craving, it is received. The intimacy you're longing for, it is received. The rest that you're hungry for when it seems like there's no way of rest coming, it is received. The longing for purpose or just feelings of apathy to reside, it is received. 
It is received from Christ because it is found in Christ. Jesus is to be received. The second thing this means for us is that this bread will never become stale. This bread of life will never become stale. This is really good news because there will be weeks when you're sitting here and my preaching will feel very stale. Maybe today's that day for you. And you're like, man, this is bread and stale. There'll be weeks where it feels like nothing is happening. There'll be weeks when you sit in your community group or your discipleship group and it will feel stale. There will be times when the people in your life will feel stale. There will be times when your, your purpose or your passion or your hobbies that you believe the Lord has given you will feel stale. There will come a time when your involvement in this church will feel stale and you'll think to yourself, is there anything more for me? And, and here's the good news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus, the bread of life, will never become stale. Though my preaching may feel stale to you, the person I am preaching about will never become stale. Uh, though your group and your community and life feel stale, the person that we gather around to worship and lift up will never become stale. The person that, that we grow and, uh, with and give ourselves to as we seek to partner and build this church will never grow stale. So the question is, when you're here or when you're there or doing whatever God has called you to do, who are you feasting on when you worship? When you gather, when you show up, are you feasting on the living bread are you waiting for somebody to give you something through an experience that only God can give you? Who or what are you asking to satisfy an appetite that only Jesus can meet? This bread, this person that we gather around and that we look to will never become stale. And his life coming in us will make everything else come alive. Lastly, Jesus is powerful and sufficient. He is the servant king, the good shepherd, the Lord of all. And and this passage of scripture is amazing because in it we see a detail that is often overlooked because it's made so clear. In this passage of scripture, as we discussed earlier, Jesus reveals an aspect of his identity. And the reason why this is significant is because Jesus does not let the people define him. He tells us straight up who he is. And this is amazing because often we come to Jesus with our own ideas and with our own thoughts about who he is and what he is like and what he should do. But very rarely do those ideas and those thoughts and those expectations match his reality. And this portion of scripture, there is no need to wonder what Jesus is like. There is no need to wonder what he can do for you and who he wants to be for you. Jesus has declared his identity. He is the bread of life. He is powerful enough to take something as small and insignificant and weak like barley loaves. That which the Jewish text would say that the barley loaves were the poor man's meal. They were insignificant. There was no worth to them. That's why we find them in a child's hand. And he takes something poor. He takes something insignificant. He takes something weak and he breaks it and he gives it up to God with thankfulness and he uses it to feed thousands. 
Do you believe that Jesus is powerful enough to take the parts of your life that feel small, that feel insignificant, that feel poor, that feel broken and offer it up with thanks to the Father and use it to bring hope and healing to your world and to the world around you? Your thoughts and ideas about Jesus match this reality, that he is the God who takes small things, ordinary things, and works miracles. You believe he is sufficient in your weaknesses. You see, church, it's really easy to give God our strength. We do this all the time. Like, Lord, I'm really good with money. Would you just give me more? God, I'm an awesome chef. Can you just give me a platform on YouTube to become great? Lord, look how great I am with, 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 with people. Uh, Lord, I love kids. Give me all of them. It's really easy to come to God in prayer with our strength and say, God, look at me. I'm good at this. Let's work around it. But it's harder to give God our weakness. It's harder to say, Lord, here's where I epically fail every single day. Can you do something? It's harder to think about those moments of brokenness because of the ones we replay or live in most often. Or this anger, can you do something? This impatience that I feel when the kids won't go to sleep, can you help me? This feeling of distance or apathy or dread, this feeling of insignificance, can you do something, Lord? And what's so good about the scriptures and and what we see is that when we give our weakness to God, in exchange, he gives us his life, which becomes our strength. So as Paul would say, when I am weak, then I am strong. Because I'm abounding in God's grace all the more. We come to a close. We let these truths dwell in our hearts that Jesus is to be received. This bread of life will never become stale. That he is powerful and sufficient. I want to close with two questions. One, do you believe this? Second, is how do we eat and how do we drink? I believe the answer is that, that we abide in him. We commune with him. We, we feast on his words. We enter into his presence through prayer. Remember what we said earlier. Jesus is to be received. Bread is to be received. The effects of bread, uh, we only see them when we eat it and we take it in. And so this bread has to be eaten. It has to get inside of us like real bread if it's going to provide any nutritional benefit. And here's what happens when the bread gets inside of us. You know this. It it begins to break down and it's processed internally. So it provides nutritional benefit to the rest of the body. And hear what Jesus said in verse 55 as we close out this chapter. For my flesh is true blood. For my flesh is true food. And my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. 
Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. What is Jesus talking about? This can only be understood with the cross in the background because at the cross, we see Jesus's body broken on the cross the way we break bread so that his life can get inside of us. The way that earthly bread is broken down as it gets inside of us and provides nutritional benefit, Jesus' body was broken on the cross so his life and his spirit could get inside of us and provide spiritual well-being and life to every single area and aspect of our life. His body was broken on the cross, broken like bread, so that you and I who hunger for life could find it in Christ. Jesus himself is the bread that creates and sustains life and his blood was shed. The blood that would remove the stain of sin, the blood that cleanses us from all sin, the blood that paid the price for our redemption. Have you received this Jesus? Is this the Jesus you're feasting on? The one who's made himself available for you, the one that was broken for you, the one that shed his blood for you. Are you abiding with him, drawing near to him? Or is something or someone else attempting to satisfy the hunger, hungers and longings of your heart? Who or what is your life? Is it Jesus or is it something or someone else? Let's consider this as we close in prayer.